This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. A bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. It is a privilege and an honor to welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Heather Hamilton. Heather, welcome. Hi, Jason. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, We typically start off getting some of the spiritual backstory from our guests. Um, Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? Yeah, it's interesting. I was, but it was a scenario where when I was about six or seven years old, like a neighbor invited us to like Awana's, um, which if you are, if you're from like the Bible Belt South, you know what that is. I do. Um, yes. And so it was really like me as a child getting involved with that. And then I can remember like the little church bus would come pick me up from my house and, you know, drive me an hour to church. And it was like, That was my introduction, but like I loved it and I would be there all the time. And then eventually, because I was going to church and bringing my little sister, like my family started going. So it's interesting, like looking back, I was, but I was actually kind of the driving force in that. Like it wasn't like my parents drug me there. I wanted to be there. So probably starting from when I was about seven going regularly up until like adult life. You know, I married someone um, that I had met in our church here. It was um, a very large mega church. And so we got, he was on staff there and um, for about 14 years. And it was like our entire life, you know, Um, I'm sure you can relate, but it was like everything, relationships, worldviews, income, just everything was wrapped up in evangelicalism and that whole world. Okay, so you're foreshadowing a change and I'm (laughs) eager to ask you about that. Before I do, tell us about the God that you grew up believing in. Once you started going to church, it became the driving force behind your family, committing to church and Christianity, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. What did the God you believed in look like and what did that faith look like practically for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. I don't know if I could have parsed this out before a, a few years ago, I th- I think that I had a picture of Jesus that I said yes to when I was seven. And that yes was very pure. And I feel like it has carried through um, to today. And then around that, there was um, Jesus's angry dad and everything else that that entailed. So there was like a relationship to Jesus and then there's a relationship to Jesus's angry dad. And 
how I see that playing out in my life was always just um, this mandate to be the one that had to do the impossible thing. So like I, I mentioned this in my book, but I can remember like being at youth retreats or whatever as like a very young child, like late elementary school, early middle school, you know, and it was like your typical youth retreat, you know, you have fun with your friends, there's the late night fires, there's the emotional services or whatever. And then it's like, you know, who wants to dedicate their life to be a missionary? And it was like, well, I guess I have to do that. You know what I mean? So anytime there was like this really hard ask, I I don't know why, but I, it was like, I felt like I had to do that. <laughs> like somebody has to do it. I'll have to do it. Um, and so that part of it was difficult for me and probably the people around me and that I feel like I had all these mandates from God that I didn't necessarily want to do, but it was mandated. And I really wanted to prove myself as like a worthy servant or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I remember hearing, you know, every time a missionary would come to our church and they would read the Isaiah 6 passage, you know, who will go for us? Here, my Lord, send me. Um, I felt the weight of that. Right. And I actually ended up going to Romania for a year based on services like that. Right. Did that weigh on you as a child? I mean, were you conscious of the weight of that? Or was it just, this is what faith demands of me? I think it was both. And, you know, and as I've deconstructed and, and tried to put all of this in context, I think there's like a light and a shadow side to n- nearly everything. So I do think I felt the weight and and I wasn't consciously going like, I really don't want to do this, but I have to do this. It. I don't think there was a choice of whether I wanted to do it or not. It was just like, I have to, you know what I mean? Like, this is like my destiny or something like that. Um, and so... Yes, this is, this is what I'm meant for. Yes, this is what I'm meant for. Um, and so there wasn't a conscious realization that I was like giving up my agency, I guess is what you would say. So on one hand, that was something that I've had to go back and reclaim is like, I... I didn't want to do that. Like I didn't want to move to other countries and be away from my family and friends and feel ripped apart for everything. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to do this really <laughs> difficult thing that no one is actually demanding of me. On the flip side, I do feel like that something in me has always like been drawn toward things that I was afraid of. Like I, I feel like it kind of caused me to put myself in situations that I wouldn't have normally put myself in, which inadvertently like expanded my horizons, you know, like you mentioned going to Romania and looking back, like, did I, did I necessarily want to do that? Or what were my motivations for doing it? I did some similar things like mission trips in Peru and all this. And for better or worse, I don't think what we did over there was like, especially meaningful to the people that we were there, you know, quote serving. But in terms of like expanding my worldview and making me ask questions about like my faith and all this stuff, I, I feel like it put me in enough scenarios where I was like, this doesn't exactly add up the way that I've been told. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you refer in the book to some mystical experiences that changed your faith. Yes. Could you describe... I, I, when I when I hear about mystical experiences, I'm very intrigued. I've for a long time really, I don't know. I guess Julian of Norwich is like my favorite 
human that mm-hmm. has probably ever lived other than Jesus uh, and my wife. I actually have a uh, background on my phone that I got from your website. Oh. <laughs> Julian of Norwich quote. I love that. The all is well. All yeah, all will be well. Yeah, that's that's just my favorite thing in the world. I remember reading a version of her work at a university, just kind of a common room and tears just streaming down my face when I got to that quote. I was really entrenched in Southern Baptist ministry life at that point. And that was such a cool drink of water for my soul. And so mystical experiences have captivated me ever since I was exposed to her work. Can you talk to us about yours and how they've changed your faith? Yes. Okay, so... The context for, for me, um, I mentioned, you know, my husband and I were in leadership in this very large evangelical mega church. That was the whole thing. So I, prior to about four years ago, I, I didn't know who Julian of Norwich was. I didn't know anything about any of the mystic or like that. Those words meant nothing to me. Um, I feel like they, they just never came across my horizon. So, when my experience happened to me, um, there was no context for it. Like I wasn't like, oh, this was a mystical experience. Basically what happened, I'm not going to get too far into the details of like what led up to it. Um, but I had just given birth to our third child. And for about six months prior to this, I was like experiencing really acute and intense periods of anxiety where it would like get extremely bad. The situation would kind of resolve and it would, you know, go back to normal. And so I was kind of trying to manage this. And looking back, I can see like it was kind of leading to this climax. Um, And so about maybe 10 weeks after um, Florence was born, that's our third child, I was, you know, in this postpartum period and all this. And um, I essentially just had some major revelations about my life. Um, I'm sorry to like be vague about it, but it was, it was basically like so many things about my life and the way I was like experiencing the world was sort of like this nebulous haze, like different experiences that I had that were strange. Um, but I didn't, couldn't really make sense of them or whatever. Um, I, I hadn't, I had an experience where I just had extreme clarity on all the vagueness about my life why I felt the way I did, why I had made the decisions I had made in my life. It's like everything about my life came into this crystal clear focus. And I essentially like had a nervous breakdown. (laughs) And it happened like very quickly over the course of about like three or four days um, where I just started, I had never really had panic attacks before. And they were like back to back to back to back panic attacks where I kind of, in the span of like less than a week went from like this really like put together mom of three career woman church leader checking all the boxes to like i i absolutely like cannot pull myself together and a little side note is i had you know been in out of therapy just um you know my my husband and i had gone for like marriage counseling and you know my own little things. And this had been like back and forth for about 15 years. Um, and suddenly all of this like unresolved trauma was overwhelming me and my nervous system and all of this. 
And so, um, honestly, like my fear was going, was, was realizing like, I'm not okay. And I've already been to 15 years of therapy. So that's not going to help me. The only thing that's going to happen if I ask for help is I'm, I'm going to be taken to a mental hospital. Like this was just my perspective at the time was like, I don't, I, I can't see any resources that can help me with this. I've already tried talk therapy for 15 years. That's not what I need. And so in my mind, it was, it was me thinking like, if I ask for help, I'm going to be separated from my kids kind of thing. And I just have no idea what's going to happen. So I kind of tried to like keep enduring this, um, until it basically, um, yeah, I like descended into what I, sort of immediately recognized as hell one evening. Um, it was just a really intense psychological descent. Um, I think I had in my mind, you know, like you're told to call out to God in those kind of moments or whatever. And it was um, just such an intense call out to God and this moment of like, whoever I'm calling out to is not there. And, um, it's, it's sort of, it's hard to explain in words, but it was just sort of like this vaporization of whatever concept I had of God. And I sort of immediately recognized the experience as hell. Like this is what complete alienation, aloneness. I don't know if you could imagine like the feeling of becoming untethered out in space or something, you know, and just floating off into oblivion <laughs> by yourself. Like that's, essentially what it felt like internally was happening to me. So extremely isolating. Yes, extremely isolating. And and just, yeah, like I said, it's, it's hard to describe. It was terrifying and and just the awareness of like no one was there. Like no one was coming to rescue me from this situation. Um, and so that was um, in the middle of the night, one evening, kind of the climax of this nervous breakdown. Um, and after that, you know, I came upstairs, woke my husband up and just said, like, I need help. I don't know what that means. I need you to call 911. And so um, he did. And the, the, when I opened the door, the person who showed up that was part of like the um, emergency response team, immediately when they began speaking, I recognized the person as a transgender person. And you know, we live in like a very conservative area and I was still like mentally in this evangelical space. And I was, the first thing I felt was just like fear. Like this is not what I was expecting to encounter in this moment. And anyway, but I just began speaking and explaining like what I was experiencing. And it was like the essence of Christ, like just began like pouring out from this woman and like all my defenses just dropped and it was like, yeah. So once again, I didn't have the language like, oh, this is a mystical experience. I just immediately recognized like that it was Christ like speaking to me in that moment. And um, long story short, like she was able to like point me to the resources that I needed that weren't going to like make the situation more traumatic. Like I truly did get the help that I needed. Um, but 
everything, it took a little while to integrate the experience. Um, but I ended up going like, okay, I know that that was hell. I know that hell is not a place that you're going to burn forever after you die. I, I, I recognized it as like the belly of the whale and sort of immediately went like, Oh, this is where Jonah was. Like, this is what this story is about and recognizing it as a rebirthing experience. Let me back up just a second and ask you, you talked about the extreme clarity that mm-hmm. you experienced. And isn't it ironic how the extreme clarity led to so much uncertainty in every other aspect of your life? Yes. During that season. Can you talk to us about that clarity? What did you become clear on? Yeah, so I think I think that the first major revelation that I did have certainty about was, um, you know, in evangelical theology, it's like people will behave in all different ways, you know, like, if you encounter like addiction or any kind of like, you know, quote unquote, bad behavior, the explanation given was like, it's just sin, you know, like that was sort of like the scapegoat answer, whatever bad behavior, oh, it it was sin. And I think I recognized first in my life, like I didn't have a lot of the quote unquote bad behaviors. Like my behaviors were very like applauded by by society but I was looking at some of my behavior going like, oh, I behaved this way out of a trauma response. You know what I mean? Like I, I was working so hard out of, it, it was a trauma response. And so I began to like be able to look around and see others, you know, who are maybe like dealing with addiction or whatever. And it was like, oh, that that is it's a trauma response. (laughs) And so suddenly like that um, explanation of like, this person's behaving badly because of sin just didn't make sense to me anymore. I was like, no, they're behaving badly because of an attachment wound or because of trauma or, you know, something like this. It was like all of a sudden I could kind of connect, connect the dots about the why behind people's behavior and not just bad behavior, but good behavior as well. For me personally, I'm like, I feel like I did all the right things for all the right reasons, all the wrong reasons. So that was the first like Jenga block that kind of came out, which, which just kind of led me to back up and be like, what is sin? And I guess the clarity was sin was the disconnection from my authentic self. It wasn't like reflected, like two people could be doing the exact same behavior. But depending on like the true or authentic self, like one could be acting out of quote sin and one could be like aligned with, you know, their inner essence or inner Christ. So like sin kind of became more of a descriptive term for the disconnection from like our true self or our essence or our authentic heart, if that makes sense. It it really does to me, especially. I have described my 20 plus years in ministry as me doing a lot of the right things for completely wrong reasons. Yes. I felt the pressure of a platform and I felt the expectations of a fishbowl to the point that I did not know who I was apart from the expectations of others. Right. And so when they applaud you, things are really good, at least for a while until the weight of that hits you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they turn against you, things are really bad. And that's when you start to experience that hell that you were discussing uh, earlier. So I, I know very well what you're talking about. How did 
these insights, these mystical uh, bursts of clarity, how did that affect your role at the church, your ministry life, your religious expression? Yeah. So when this happened, um, my husband was literally like the music director at this very large church. Um, and so, uh, it was an interesting time because for me personally, um, I did, I did get back into like a more intense, um, trauma therapy after that, which I didn't, I didn't know existed before all this. Um, but luckily it was a resource that was there afterwards. And so for me, I was, I kind of like, um, you know, I said, I recognized I was in the, in the belly of the whale, which ironically, when I went back and read that story, you know, Jonah says like, out of the belly of hell, I cried. And it was, it was just so interesting to go back, um, after having my experience going like, oh, I know that was hell. That was the belly. Like, I, I think this is where Jonah is going back and reading the passage and going like, oh, no, he says he was in hell, you know, which like flips the whole thing on its head because you're like, oh no, Jonah went to hell and then he came out of hell. So clearly like this is like a transitionary period, you know, like what happens in a belly? It's where like food is broken down, like the old is broken down and metabolized and transmuted into new energy, like to like fuel a new creation. Like what you're eating is literally being like digested and metabolized and used to like make you a new, a new body. Like we are what we eat, all this. So, so the metaphor was like coming in crystal clear. So at first I would say my, yeah, I felt like some of those Bible characters who were just kind of like blurting out my revelations, like, I don't believe in hell anymore. You know, like, like saying these things <laughs> <laughs> just like randomly to people, you know, like, Oh my God, like I just have to, it's not real, you know? And, um, some people were like, Oh wow. You know, I'm kind of curious about this. I noticed some people felt like really drawn into like deeper conversations about what I meant. And then other people were just like, what the hell, you know, like, what is she talking about? So anyways, it it was me trying to like navigate this like within our church context. And it did get to a point where Jared was on staff working there, but for like my own spiritual growth, like I had to stop. Um, and I, it was one of those things where I was like, just so confused as to whether like, am I like helping or harming my kids by having them in this environment? I, the answer was like, I don't know. And, you know, just as a mother, if you're like, if the answer is I don't know, we're out <laughs> until I figure this out. Um, and so I, I kind of just took a giant step back, um, personally. And, you know, to the church's credit, I, I did feel like that they were kind of understanding about that. Um, which I know is maybe pretty rare. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's one little light side of like a, a mega church world is like, it's so big. That right. That's what I was going to say. That's the gift of the mega church right there. You can disappear without it becoming a spectacle. Exactly. Yes. Anyway, that that's kind of what happened is like, I, I took a big step back to like re sort all of this out and like 
start trying to integrate the experiences. Um, and then just for me personally, it was more like starting to engage in practices where like embracing silence, you know, it was like so important to me to like, I had sort of heard my authentic voice for the first time and realized like, I, I can't hear this right now over the worship music. I can't hear this right now over the preaching and the theology and the social pressure and, you know, all of the noise, <laughs> like it all just, um, <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's getting close to Christmas. So it's like the who's down and who, like the Grinch was like, there's the noise, noise, noise <laughs> right, yeah. is like just how I felt. And I'm like, I have to get away from all of it, you know? So it was like, started practicing meditation and yoga and like reconnecting with like the sensations in my body and like the intelligence in my body, you know, and going like, Oh, why do I feel unease? Like when I'm around this person or in this situation or, or whatever, you know, and just kind of realizing like how much I had like suppressed those sensations and those intuitions and all of that. And most of, most of it was because like, well, we're all Christians. So all these people are safe, you know? And all of a sudden it was like, oh, that's not, that's not my um, checkbox anymore. It's more about like, what's my body telling me? What's my heart telling me about this situation? And like, how do I ex exercise discernment? And I feel like I really had to like relearn all of that for a couple years. Um, learning how to trust myself and my own discernment. And so what that looked like for me was like taking a huge step back, which was funny enough, like a pattern that I, that I see in the biblical characters, you know, it's like Paul has his like big road to Damascus mystical experience. And he's like gone for three years. You know, I'm like, what, oh, I know what he was doing. <laughs> he was doing what I was doing, you know, is like, basically letting your old mind like fall away and trying to reintegrate like this new perspective and this new way of living. Like how do I live this out in the ordinary world? Wow. That is some extreme clarity right there. And as you're speaking, I'm realizing that I am in that desert season mm -hmm. right now of my own life. You know, about uh, three years ago, my wife and I, after having chased my ministry dream for so many years, um, shut down the little church that we were leading in Alabama and moved to the beach to live her dream mm -hmm. of, of living on the beach. Wow, that's and um, that's exactly what we've been doing. Mm -hmm. We've been, you know, taking time away from everything and figuring out who we are now and who we are together and, and, you know, what will the rest of our life look like in light of our evolving faith. Do you feel like this evolution in your life, Heather, has has it made you a more loving person? Do you feel like it's changed you personally? Oh, for sure. Yes. <laughs> it's funny because, um, you know, when we were having some convert, like at, at a certain point, we did need to like have some conversations with people at the church and just kind of say like, I don't want to feel like I'm hiding. This is what is going on. Like, this is where I am personally in our marriage. I don't know if y'all experienced this, but like it, Jared came with me, but like this hasn't happened like at the same pace. And so, especially in the beginning, there was like some push pull of like, 
okay, what's going, you know, Jared didn't necessarily want to pull our kids. Uh, you, you know, for him, he was like, I don't understand like why this is such a big deal to you to like have them go to this little church event. You know what I mean? Um, and so there were those kind of conversations, but I remember, um, having a conversation with, um, with a leader at the church and, you know, me kind of saying like, I don't know where I'm, I'm going to land with this. I feel, I feel so much clarity about figuring, honoring my true self and my path, like wherever that takes me. And, you know, for Jared and I, I was like, you know, I don't know if that's going to lead me out of Christianity. And if it does, if I'm coming back, like, I just need you to not put any expectations on me, you know, that, okay, let her explore, but eventually you got to come back. I'm like, I can't promise you that. So if that's a deal breaker for you, you know, like, we need to talk about that. (laughs) And luckily for him, like, he's just such a gracious man. It wasn't, you know, and, um, that was a very like healing thing in my heart. It was like, oh, wow, I've been married to this person for like over a year. And I'm like feeling the most loved I ever have. And just knowing that like he married me for me, not because I was a Christian. Um, And, you know, to be honest, I don't know if that was true the other way around. It was like, no, you need to check the box and then we can get on with things. But yeah, I remember this leader at the church asking like, well, Jared, like, what's this been for you? He's like, to be honest, it's been so much nicer being married to her like since all this happened. Wow. So it was funny. It was like, as I was quote unquote, like losing my old faith, just like my relationships with him and like with my kids were flourishing. Like I feel like that the love was unblocked and was like really flowing for the first time. And there was um, this taking of responsibility for my own reactions. Which that, I mean, I think that that happening in a therapeutic context is really helpful. You know, kind of being in the quote unquote like deconstruction community along with a lot of people, you know, like yourself, as you said, like, oh, we're we're suddenly out here in the wilderness looking back, trying to figure out like what went wrong in all of this. I think a big part for me personally that that I feel like doesn't, get discussed quite enough um, on this side of things was like the personal responsibility for like my internal state, you know, and going like, you know, the reason why I feel this sadness or frustration or anger is because of blah, 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 something on the outside, which was like true, but also going like, I want to get to a point where I'm not triggered all the time and taking it out on the people around me. So doing, I think maybe because, um, I don't know, the way that I entered into the deconstruction space was really like these huge personal revelations about my life coupled with like the mystical experience. It kind of started out on the forefront of like, yeah, just this, um, massive, massive, recognition that I didn't have the ability to like respond in loving ways the way that I wanted to. And I was the only one that was going to be responsible for that. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. So in light of all of that, 
You have written this incredible book, Returning to Eden, A Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey. Uh, As soon as I heard the title, actually, I read it in an email. As soon as I read that title, I wanted to ask you, what does returning to Eden mean to you? Returning to Eden was a recognition of like a return to my true self. Um, And I kind of mapped this out in the book. And really the book is sort of like a a step-by-step map or guide to like the journey back to the true authentic self and an unpacking of like that we really all start out in the garden in like this state of, I call it like unitive consciousness. And this is like when we are children, you know, where we kind of just come into the world in our authentic essence. And then, so kind of how I map it out in the book is like, if you think of a tree that grows fruit, which would be like the seeds on the tree, like in order for those seeds to like move forward and fulfill their destiny, which is ultimately like to become another tree, the seed has to fall off of, um, you know, fall from its source, which, um, I, you know, I have a chapter in there about Adam and Eve and how this is really like a metaphor for this developmental process of us falling from our source. And that, you know, that term, the fall is like framed as like this moral failure on our part. And really it's like, no, if you just look at nature, you know, if I look out in my backyard right now, like this is an inevitable process that like, I'm going to fall from this like unity with my source into this perception of like disconnection. And then, you know, if you think about a seed or an acorn or whatever, most of us are going to think about, you know, the, the little round thing that you can hold in between your fingers. Um, but the actual like germinating potential for that seed to become a tree is inside the shell. There's like an actual embryo inside the seed. And I think what I try to like break down in the book is the fall, this construction of like the outer shell that holds our germinating potential within creates this like illusion of separation, which is like, um, you know, what we could call like quote unquote sin. But as Julian Norwich says, like it's necessary, like the embryo that grows on the source, the tree would, would not be able to sustain like the journey of falling off the tree and the elements of the weather and, you know, everything that our environment and nature like throws up against us without like this hard outer shell. So, and, you know, in the book, I call the outer shell, the false self or like the egoic personality. Like there's, there's several different terms for it, but it's all talking about the same thing. Um, and that's really, that serves a purpose. And it's kind of like looking back on your whole life. Um, you know, why did I do this? Why did I act this? Like, why were these defenses here? Why did I, why am I constantly triggered by that? Um, and you realize like, oh, this is, this is what I needed for growth to get to where I am now. And it's only at like when that shell has served its purpose and, you know, it's done all it can do for you. It's taken you as far as you can go. That's when it, it has to die. Um, and 
so I kind of explain like this, I think that this is the spiritual dying and rebirthing process. Um, you know, for me, it was realizing like, I think that what this biblical text is talking about is not about me saying a prayer when I was seven years old. It's about like what's happening to me now where I feel like the old self or personality is dying. Um, and there's something new, which is like scary and very disruptive, like, <laughs> and unpredictable. But I knew it was, I was, I felt more alive than I ever had before. It was like this rapture of my being. And, and it, I realized like, oh, I'm, I've reconnected with that life source inside the shell, which started on the tree in the Garden of Eden, if that makes sense. So, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I remember early on when, when this was happening, you know, my dream world got very vivid, not to get like too woo woo about it or whatever, but I just, it was like a lot of images and dreams and these kind of things that would like come up at nighttime. And I remember, one night I just woke up like at three in the morning. It was like, boom, returning to Eden. Like, I think that that kind of encapsulates the spiritual journey for me. Is this, you know, this circle of coming back to where you started, but you've taken the journey, you know, and you, you come back with like this, this wisdom that you can now like live out your destiny and your full potential, but you also like, you bring back you know, the elixir that the world needs to like regenerate life in the kingdom, you know? Um, and that's, that's kind of something that like plays out in myths, like not just in the Bible, but like all over the world, you know, like the Holy Grail or whatever. It's like, you have to go on this journey to find like the, yeah, the elixir or the, the thing that's going to like bring life to the withering kingdom, you know? So the deconstruction journey isn't just about like retreating for forever, you know, into, I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, but like onto the mountaintop. It's about like coming back into the withering world and bringing like your hard earned wisdom or your gift with you to like regenerate life. I love that so much. You end the book talking about the new earth. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about that for a minute? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I think primarily, well, first of all, I quote a, a man named Joseph Campbell, who's been very impactful for me, like on my personal journey. Um, and he basically like rose to prominence as like a teacher of comparative mythology. And something that he kind of talks about is like, you know, it's a very, it's a very human question to go like, you know, what is the meaning of life? Like we're all searching for the meaning of life. And he says, you know, I don't know if what we actually want is like a meaning as much as we want, like the experience of really being alive, you know? So first and foremost, like the new earth to me, or like finding the promised land was, was finding like this finding it in my own body, my own existence. Like, can I, can I sit here and do nothing and like feel completely alive, you know? So it was first of all, like 
accessing that place in myself and like just the experience of feeling like love and gratitude and joy and peace and grief and sorrow and like the entire spectrum of what this human experience has to offer me. Like, can I bear all of it and like let it expand me? Um, and so that the new earth to me is number one, like in your body, like can heaven and earth like intersect in your body where like the two become one flesh. Um, I talk about that in the book, of course, like as we know, that's like, you know, traditionally been set up is like, you know, oh, this is about a man and a woman having sex. And so it's got to be a man and a woman, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I don't think that's what it's about at all. (laughs) I think it's about this reconnection of like heaven and earth, excuse me, heaven and earth becoming one, like in your own vessel or in your own temple, you know? So there's that. And then like living out of that place, once I realized this in myself and this potential in myself, I, I saw it in everybody else. So to me, like when I walk around and I'm like looking and interacting with people, like regardless of their behavior, I, I, I know that that germinating potential is within them, like in the deepest part of their hearts. Um, there's a quote in the book by like Carol Houselander. And she says like, you know, even the souls that seem to be dead, like are Christ in the tomb, like just because you know, someone is sort of like disfigured or disguised by their quote unquote bad behavior. Like Christ is still like asleep in the tomb of their heart. Like it, he's just not been resurrected yet. So every, every time there's like a Christ in the tomb is potential for like a risen Christ. So when I like live out of that place in myself and I can see it in other people, it's like, I can speak to that part of them and like, I just feel like my my journey through life has just become so much more of this exciting adventure where, yeah, like speaking, um, yeah, calling forth like the Christ inside other people and like seeing people like light up or awaken or like remember, you know, their authentic essence for like the first time is like, just, I'm like, that's what it's about. That's fun. You know? So yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I'm like, it's that energy and that awareness that I think ultimately ends up healing people and healing the world and setting a better trajectory, like for our kids. Like, I love that I can explain love and God and Christ to my kids in that way, as opposed to like, you know, the way that we were brought up. I have a, this, this funny story. Um, there's like a little Baptist church outside of our neighborhood. And um, we were driving by it one day and my oldest daughter was like, mom, you know, wh- why don't we go to that church or whatever, you know? And I kind of simply was like, well, I think at that church that they believe that God only lives in the hearts of some people, not everybody. And, and Nora and my oldest were just like, what? Well, we should go tell them that God lives in everybody. And I was like, oh. I was just like cracking up at the irony. I was like, my little kid 
wants to bust in there and go witness like to the Baptist church, you know, and like share her quote unquote truth or gospel with them. Anyways, I just... She sees them as the mission field. Exactly. And that is so ironic. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> it, was, it was so funny, you know? But like, yeah, even for me, like the mission field really just became, how do I help people like recognize the divine within them, you know? And it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like if you're whatever you call yourself, Christian, atheist, agnostic, whatever. I feel certain I have a conviction that you have like a divine spark in you. And this whole thing is about awakening that and awakening that potential. So good. So good. Friends who are listening, I really encourage you to get a copy of this book, Returning to Eden, A Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey. It's available February 22nd. And I hope you won't miss it. It is incredibly written super short chapters, very, very readable. You're going to love this book. It feels important. It feels like um, reading it deposits something into your soul that will bring fruit to your life. And I hope that you'll get a copy of it. We'll put a link uh, in the show notes to make sure you can get a copy easily. Heather, would you read us a passage of the book before we go? Yeah, I will. Thanks for asking me to do that. It was hard to pick out one because I feel like I did I did try to pack a lot into this book. And to be clear, my first and foremost audience was my adult children, where I was just going, you know, if I'm never not here, I I don't trust <laughs> at the time I was like, I don't trust anyone else to like give, get this information to my kids. So, you know, as I was writing the book, they were my audience. And it was like, that's what kept me in my integrity. It was like, if I'm not here, what do I need them to know, you know, about Christianity, about Christ, about the spiritual journey, like what all this is about. And so there were a lot of, it's, it's a densely packed book, you know, it's like, <laughs> here, I want you to have this field guide. So I put everything in here that that I could. Um, but I picked out this passage um, from chapter 35 and it's about forgiveness. And I think at the end of the day, this is what has like moved me and what I think like the kind of the final finish line is um, and where we're all headed. So um, yeah, I'm going to read that from the end of this chapter. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing is the posture of a person, Jesus, hanging from a cross, who understands that people inflict their own pain on others in an attempt to expel it from their bodies. It is the posture of someone who understands that pain not transformed is instead transmitted because energy cannot simply cease to exist. It can only change form. It is an understanding that we are all victims of other victims in one way or another. This knowledge allows the heart to open to compassion for the suffering of all victims, ourselves and others, including perpetrators. Forgiveness does not eliminate responsibility or accountability for harm done. It does extend unconditional compassion to all. Perpetrators have experienced their own victimization. It is essential to acknowledge the whole scope of an individual and to allow their entire story to exist in the light. We must have the courage to look into the dark, keep our eyes open, and have the humility to withhold judgment. 
I have personally found that those who have forgiven the greatest atrocities are the least judgmental. Compassion is the heart's most natural state, and therefore compassion allows the body to use energy most efficiently. Aligning yourself with love transmutes the energy of unforgiveness, utilized to keep the false self intact, into the energy of compassion, which services the flourishing of the true self. Unforgiveness can be visualized as lead, compassion as gold. It is this golden energy that grows the true self from an embryo into a tree of life. Our energy is no longer used to nurse old wounds. It is now efficiently channeled to nourish the growth of our true self. This is the fullness of life. It's the harnessing of all your energy for your good, the good of others and the good of the world. Jesus did not die to do this work for you. He died to show you that this was possible for every human because he was human. His final message on the cross was that forgiveness for the entire world is the last gate into heaven. Not one resentment will be able to slide in. You must die the same way you were born, free of resentment, free of guilt, free of shame, full of compassion and love. This is how you are saved by the cross. What is a follower of Jesus but one who seeks to die with nothing but love left in their heart, offering the mercy of forgiveness to myself first for the dreadful pain I've caused myself and others, then for all, even those who've caused me tremendous pain, and finally to forgive life itself for the anguish of suffering, which I cannot blame on anyone. I wish to die with no record of wrongs in my heart. I wish to have let it all go and to have and to have let the lightness of grace and peace lift my soul to eternal rest. I wish to travel lightly in this life, holding on to nothing, especially the heavy load of resentment. I must surrender to my own sacrifice on my cross, laying at the altar my offering, the parts that I use to build my personal prison, until all that's left of me is love. Incredible. Thank you so much for this conversation, for the book. Friends, I hope you'll get Returning to Eden, a field guide for spiritual journey. You'll find a link in the show notes. Heather, one last question before we go. You talked early in the conversation about the simple, pure yes to Jesus as a child and how in some ways it has stuck with you to this day, that it remains true for you to this day. How do you perceive that differently now in light of all of these experiences that you did as a child? Mm, That's such a good question. I think that my yes to Jesus has expanded to a yes to life, that Christ is like saturated in all of life. Like it is an ultimate yielding to all of it. And so, yes. Christ is like the personal symbol of the universal life. And so, yeah, the yes when I was seven was the first gate. And, you know, this experience that I've had has kind of been the final gate into like, yes, of everything. I know that's a little, uh, I'm not sure if that's making sense or eloquently said, but... It actually reminds me. I, I, I feel like I've been talking to Richard Rohr for the last hour. Mm, well, that makes is, me happy. <laughs> <laughs> which is an extreme compliment from me, oh, uh, just because you. I love him so much. But, you know, he, he talks about Christ being another name for everything. Yeah. And saying yes to Christ 
and saying yes to everything. And I love that so much. So thank you so much for the book, for this conversation. And I hope that we meet up again down the road. Me too. Thanks for having me, Jason. 